You're listening to The Artful Periscope, the nimble art of storytelling, pulling the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. We're recording this episode on the day after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died. Overnight, I had a dream. Justice Ginsburg was driving a bus. That ride has ended. My mother, in her 90s, was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer and died three months later. It's a terrible, terrible disease. Out of the darkness into the light. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome to the podcast, Artful Periscope, where we explore the nimble craft of storytelling. On this episode, my guests are Reverend Gail Fisher-Stewart, editor of Preaching Black Lives Matter, and later on, Darren Strauss, the author of The Queen of Tuesday, a Lucille Ball story joins us. Is there a thread that connects us to those who matter? For this episode, both of my guests have challenged me in very different ways. My first guest, Reverend Gail Fisher-Stewart, is the editor of Preaching Black Lives Matter. Reverend Fisher-Stewart has been involved in the valuing of diversity black lives for over 40 years. And as I said before, she is the editor of Preaching Black Lives Matter. Reverend Gail, welcome to the program. Oh, good morning and welcome to you. Thank you for the invitation. It's good to be here. Thank you so much. There's a television program called P-Valley that's created by Katori Hall. And in her podcast with Elvis Mitchell, she says this and it's very insightful. There are many rooms in the black experience and dialects. From where you were born, metaphorically, what kind of room did you come from? And what was your life like in the early days? I was born in Washington, D.C., so born, educated, raised, and will probably die right in this in this area. And initially, you know, it was, D.C. was segregated. It was a southern sleepy little town, and put, people don't realize that. Uh, but I grew up in a community, a family that kind of hid that from us. We knew that there were certain places we couldn't go. For example, if you went to a uh, shop downtown at Woody's, you just have to buy the clothes. You couldn't try them on. And if you got home and tried them on and they didn't fit, it was just you know, too bad. Uh, we went to, I went to segregated schools, but didn't really realize that they were segregated because our teachers who of course were black were committed to providing us an education that would get us to where we wanted to be. And, and so they, they, they challenged us. They wouldn't let us fail. Uh, they would pick up the phone in a minute. Of course, you had to go to the principal's office and call your parents. And you didn't want your parents coming to school because you knew you were really in trouble. So it, it was a, it was a good life. It was a sheltered life. We knew that there were some things that we couldn't do. I remember when Glen Echo Amusement Park was first integrated and my father took us there. And, you know, as kids, we weren't concerned that it wasn't integrated before. We were just glad that it was integrated now. Uh, during the summer, we went to Sparrows and Cars Beach, uh, right outside of Annapolis, because those were the black beaches. Uh, we didn't realize there were other beaches that we that 
existed that we couldn't go to. We just went to the ones that we could. Uh, but as I grew up, we realized uh, that there there was a difference, that there was still, uh, if it wasn't de facto uh, segregation, there was still de jure segregation in our school system. We had a tracking system, and it seemed like the majority of Blacks, particularly Black males, were in the social adjustment class. Uh, so there was a there was an education on top of an education, but it prepared us for what we are called to do today. And I was just having a conversation with my niece who said that she really wished that there was more conversation between the elders and her generation, which is millennial and generation uh, Z, because they never knew a time when you had to go to the back door or you couldn't be served in a restaurant. And so they, they, they know it, but they don't have that experience. And, and she was asking that whether or not it would make sense for those who, of us who had actually gone through it to tell what it was like, because although they know about it, uh, they haven't had anyone really sit down and say, this is what it's like to get to someplace and be told that we're not going to serve you or you have to go to the back door. You can't try on the clothes here. So there's an opportunity for the elders to have conversations with the young folks to let them know exactly why they are in the streets today, that we're still fighting some of the same problems. They're just a little bit different. You know, I watched the funeral of uh, John Lewis, and I thought that was an education in American history. Mm -hmm. I'll tell you why, because I learned about Diane Nash, who I didn't mm -hmm. know about. Yes. I learned about the national years with John Lewis, and he said something that's really interesting because it's about civil disobedience, but he called it good trouble. Mm -hmm. What are your thoughts about watching that funeral? I'm, sure, I'm assuming you probably did because very important American, but in terms of my life, I learned an awful lot just by watching those hours honoring John Lewis. Well, yes, I, you know, I watched the, the funeral. I, and I, I remember watching, seeing on television at Pettus Bridge. And what happened? Um, that was all across the nation. And I, I grew up with the names Diane Nash. They're a few years older than, than I am. Uh, but these were things that our parents kind of talked about, but didn't talk about, but that we knew was happening. So it was really a replaying of what people my generation, I'll be 69 in in uh, December, that uh, people my generation watched, experienced, knew, heard people talking about uh, when King called for clergy and others to come down to uh, Montgomery so they, they could continue to, to the march. My father wasn't clergy, but he decided to go. And I remember my mother just being so fearful that he was he was going down there. And so this was this isn't history to me. This this is my life. And to see it replayed today, it almost makes us wonder whether or not uh, we've had that much progress. And there has been progress, but not enough. And I think people of my generation and older, we got kind of comfortable that we could actually go and shop or go right. to the school that we want or buy a house where we want. And we got comfortable without continuing the fight to eradicate racism. And so now it's come to bite the young people. And they're asking us, really, like, we thought you fixed this. But we got a little bit too comfortable with what we, we, we were, we accepted crumbs from the master's table as opposed to taking over the table. 
And so we're fighting yeah. some of the same the same issues. And, and they're wondering why, you know, why is this happening? Isabel Wilkerson has a book out now called Cast. Cast, Are you yes. With that? I read it. <laughs> uh, you're the perfect person to talk to. And I'll tell you why. Because she says America has created a caste system. Yeah. And after that became a segregation. And I'm curious for your reaction. I think it's one of the most important books that are out there now. Yes, it is. I had a chance, because I listened to interviews on, on podcasts. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think I learned an awful lot. Once again, going back to what I learned at the funeral of John Lewis. And it's almost like uh, this country has created a bipolar caste system, and that outgrowth is segregation. Well, you want to amplify on that because you did read it and you're familiar with it, and I'd like to hear that. Yeah, it, 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 it brings up some very good points. And, and when I recommend, when I read it and then recommended it to everybody, I said, you need to read this because these are things that black people have known, have felt, experienced, but to see them in writing, it makes us understand. It make it tells us that we're not crazy in what we have thought about race in this country. And so we, we have a caste system and, and black Americans, American blacks are on the bottom. And it doesn't, and because this is the way caste system works, it doesn't matter how much education you have, uh, how much money you have, because in the caste system, you can never get out of that level that we are perpetually at the bottom. And that that does something to your psyche to, to have to admit that regardless of what we do, that they're, that that we are on the bottom. And so when we had Obama in the White House, well, how could somebody from this cast, this bottom cast, be right. in the White House? That's not supposed to happen. And so you have whites at the top of this pyramid cast, and it doesn't matter how rich, how poor, it doesn't matter. The whiteness gets you entree into the top. And then everybody else comes in in the middle and tries to jockey for position, but no one wants to be at the bottom. And as long as you're on one step above the American Negro, you know, we have Afro-Caribbean, we have Africans uh, and everybody, the other folks who come and they jockey for position. And one thing she said was that when you have the Afro-Caribbeans and the Africans who come to this country, they are about the only group that does not give up or assimilate to whiteness. They don't lose their accent. They don't change their customs because that differentiates them from the American Negro on, on, on the bottom of the, of the cast. And so I remember teaching diversity to the Metropolitan Police Department and DC has a large Ethiopian community. Right. And so the presenter was, was talking about, you know, being Ethiopian in the Washington metropolitan area. And one of the officers asked, well, do you consider yourself black? And he said, no, why would we consider ourselves black? Who wants to be black? Blacks are pariahs. And so my colleague and I, we're both black. We look at each other and we call it a timeout. We, you know, time out. We've got to discuss this. And so we asked him, he said, we asked him, we like, what is it? What do you mean by pariah? And he says, well, we watch Western television. And so you're criminals, you know, you're hookers, you, you're poor, you don't have anything. Why would anybody want to be like you? And so you have people who are getting this, this, Western media feed about how it is to be black in America. And so when they come here, they 
want to disassociate themselves with us. And so what she does is just lay out, as I said, you know, what, what American Blacks have known, felt, and experienced, but to see it in print lets us know that we were not crazy, that this was actually happening. If you're just joining us, my guest is the editor preaching Black Lives Matter, Reverend Gail Fisher-Stewart. There's something also very frightening in this book. She said, Nazi Germany came over to America to study the caste system. They learned it from us. From us. That's yeah. frightening. It, it is frightening. And one thing she said, you know, because even though they were trying to uplift the Aryan race, they were trying to figure out how to how to ensure that people who had enough Aryan blood actually made it to the Aryan ranks, right? Yeah. But in this country, we had the one one drop rule. If you had one drop of black blood, you and and she writes that that was even too bizarre for the Nazis. That there, you know, that only one drop would make you black. And they were saying, well, we were trying to find out how to get more people to be Aryan, you know, percentage of Aryan blood. And so the, the fact that they thought that our one drop rule was was, was too much for the Nazis, it, it kind of like blew your mind. But yeah, we, they studied the book on dehumanizing black folks to come up with their final solution. I want to expand the conversation. I'll tell you why. Because in America, I think this debate is going on based on the leaders of our country. Your thoughts about what I call the debate and conversation about empathy, compassion, and humility. Can you amplify on what you believe that represents and maybe that's lacking in our leaders today in America? What we have to really understand is that there is value in whiteness, right? There is value in whiteness. There is value in white supremacy, that whiteness is supreme, that whiteness is at on the top. And so when you when you have a black president, for us, when we have a black presiding bishop, when you have black lawyers, that that just disrupts the myth, the narrative of white supremacy, because if whiteness is supreme, you shouldn't have people of color in these in these positions. The other thing is that. Until you get to to know someone, and Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative calls that, you know, being in proximity, being proximate to people. Until we can sit down and I actually know you as a person, as opposed to seeing you as a white person or a Republican or a Democrat, we really don't have a connection. And that's where the empathy comes in. Studies have shown, shown that a majority of, of white people really don't have people of color as intimate conversation uh, partners or in their intimate circle. I might work with them, might go to school with them, but I don't really know a black person. I don't really know an Asian person. I don't really know an indigenous person because in, in, until we can walk in each other's shoes, then we can't feel how it is to be discriminated against or how it is how it is to know that regardless of how much you do there are people who want to keep you from being and i have to go theological on on you uh what god has called us to be and so as long as we have this striations 
in in society where we might live in the same community, but we don't really know our neighbors. We might send our kids to you know, um, integrated schools, but they don't really have close friends, then we don't see each other as being like me, that all they want is what I want for my family, for my children, for myself. And so that that's the issue. We don't really know. We can't sit down and have civil conversations with each other because we don't really know each other. That's very thoughtful and makes me want to think more about what we're talking about. And I will once we're done. At the top, I mentioned the, the death of Justice Ginsburg. I think that's very traumatic for many, many people and many, many reasons. Death is traumatic for everybody on, on a small level and on a large global level. Here's where I'm curious about your thoughts. For the African-American community, is trauma and death almost institutional PTSD? They're facing it almost every day of their lives. It is traumatic being Black in this country. Just waking up Black is traumatic. If you think about my my son is 43 years old, and I still fear that I might get a call where he's been in a semi-innocent uh, interaction with a police officer and he's dead. You know, to 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 be a black parent and realize that 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 could be reality for something simple, something stupid. Just that is traumatic to know that people will look at me and think I'm not qualified or if I if I have all the credentials, then I got them through affirmative action as opposed to no, I did it through hard work. It is traumatic being Black in this country. And it is a sort of PTSD. We all need to be in therapy somewhere, uh, but we rely on our resilience that somehow we have gotten this far and are still surviving and thriving, however thriving is, is, is uh, defined. Uh, we have to rely on our faith Although in a uh, book I just read by Robert Jones, White Too Long, who, who says that uh, racism and racist attitudes correlate more with white Christians uh, than those who are unchurched, it makes me want to rethink church. Uh, if church is about eliminating racism, how can that be if the majority of whites in uh, Christian churches uh, hold racist views? And he says it's a cross it's across denominations, evangelicals, mainline uh, Protestants, and Roman Catholics. And so all of this kinds of fit in. And as you know, you, you talked about my book, which, you know, we have, we are a very, very white denomination, the Episcopal Church, but we have black folks in it. Right. And how is it when we're called to preach uh, racial justice when as one of my colleagues, he has four churches, and I won't tell you the state, uh, but he has four churches. And not only is he the only Black in those four churches, he's the only Black among those four towns. And so it, it is difficult to get up and preach Black Lives Matter when folks go like, for what? We don't even have any Black folks. 
So, you know, and, and, and then how is it if you are a white minister and your congregation is totally white and, and, and you are, you want to preach racial justice, but then you're told we don't need, that's, that's political. Why are you doing that? And so all of these questions come up as we deal with race in community and also in, in, in the church. And it, it can be very traumatizing and it can make you actually question your faith, you know, because we say, OK, um, Jesus, if you're going to come back, could you come back now? Because we think 2020 sucks. And so if you come back now, maybe you can fix it for us. I'm Larry Davis, and this is the podcast, Artful Periscope. All right, the elephant in the room, by the way, we're finally going to get to that Black Lives Matter movement. Mm-hmm. And it's been hijacked by outside forces in terms of chaos and violence. Has the message been diluted by what we're seeing on the news every single night? Violence, chaos. I'm curious for your response and reaction to that. Number one, Black Lives Matter movement is actually that. It's not an organization. It is a movement. It may, in fact, have chapters, and that's because when people get together, they have to give themselves some kind of name. But when you look at the disruption, when you look at the violence, it's not the folks with the movement. It is not. It's the folks who want to uh, cast aspersions on Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, which is no different than when the civil rights movement, it was called Marxist, it was called communist. Anything that threatens whiteness in this country is going to be seen as un-American. I mean, Trump is is, is calling for a, a commission to, to study the history curriculum that is given to our, our, our children, our students, and he wants a pro-American curriculum in history. And to me, I'd say, okay, so you want a pro-white, pro-racist curriculum uh, because he thinks that when we talk about racism, we talk about slavery, when we talk about eugenics, when we teach all about Japanese internment, that that is that is polluting our kids, that is teaching them something un-American when no, that's what happened in America. And we're just asking for a more comprehensive view of American history, as opposed to just one way of thinking and not dealing with the negative. Here's something else that's controversial, reparations. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I raise it is because there's an activist in Chicago. She has said, looting is a form of reparations. That upsets a lot of people. The concept of reparations is an interesting debate that we think and conversation we need to have. But if you're equating looting with reparations, that turns off a lot of people, even those who support the movement. That's one person's opinion. Okay, we are are figuring out exactly what reparations should be. Uh, the Episcopal Diocese of Maryland last week at the Diocese Convention approved one million dollars for reparations. Now they got to figure out what that looks like. Uh, the Episcopal Diocese of Texas approved thirteen million dollars for reparations, and this is what the church has done to to uh, perpetuate racism. And so once you, you finally convince people that there is money, and in, in my own diocese, we have a reparations group uh, that is saying, you know, it's going to be close to $30 billion to do fair reparations across 
uh, the black community and even even more. Uh, but once you convince people that there needs to be some narrowing of, of the gap, because if you look at education, you look at healthcare, you look at housing, you know, the number of black folks who, who uh, black soldiers who came back and could not use the GI Bill. Right. Okay. And so we talk about that your generational wealth has to do with home ownership. Well, you, you, you couldn't use a bill because you were discriminated against. So you couldn't buy a home and pass it, that wealth down to your family. So we have to look at how blacks have been left out. It said that if if everything is even bored today, that it would take 238 years for the average black family to gain the wealth of the average white family has this day. 238 years. And so reparations is 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 asking the question, and how can we make up that gap? And we haven't quite figured that out. Does everybody get a check? Probably not. But can we fix the school systems? Can we ensure that people who need housing have housing? Can we fix the, the health care system, which COVID-19 has pointed out the, the disparities in, in health care? Yeah. So how do we really make this country live up to its ideals and have these conversations without folks thinking, OK, you're going to take money from me and give it to some undeserving folks. Well, the question I would have to ask is, if you trace your family back, what benefits did you accrue because of whiteness? What benefits did you accrue because other folks were not allowed to fairly compete for jobs that help you have your life right now? But to have those conversations, we need to go back to your issue of being proximate and having empathy and being able to have these open and honest conversations that in the beginning are going to hurt. They're going to hurt, yeah. but they are necessary to do. Now on television, there's a series called Lovecraft Country. Oh yeah. All right. So you're familiar with that. Oh yeah. Vince so, done it twice. All right. So in an episode through a magical potion, one of the primary characters, Ruby, become Ruby. Thank you. Become white and goes into downtown Chicago and sees the eye, the world through the eyes of a white person. Mm -hmm. Which is a very interesting commentary about how we see the world depending on our station and our skin color. Now in real life, there's a professor from George Washington University, I believe her name is Jessica A. Krug, who has been masquerading as a black teaching African history. Uh -huh. This is really interesting. She's not the first person to do that because Rachel Dolezal did it. Right. Use it I believe uh, heading an NCAA a chapter. Um, yeah. NCAA chapter. This is an interesting phenomenon um, because you do have in literature black women who can pass for white. There's a book out right now talking about sisters taking divergent uh, places in their lives. That fascinates fascinates me. Why? A white person wants to be perceived and live the life as a black person. It's the opposite of Ruby in a sense. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, you know, black people have always passed. Um, if you were light enough to do it, if you looked white enough, 
uh, you, you pass because again, there there are financial and societal benefits that accrue to being to being white. Uh, there is a book called Passing Strange, and it was about a, a couple, a white man. I mean, and he had blonde hair and blue eyes. He married uh, a former enslaved woman, uh, but it was illegal to do so. And he went over to the black community. He told everybody he was black, although he looked whiter than white. Right. But he lived in the in the black community. White people believed him when he said he was black, although he looked white. Because the question was, why would you ever want to say you were black and you were not? In, in this country, there, this is an inflection point. What's going on with the presidential races? Voting rights, whole gambit of issues that, that uh, we can talk about for hours and hours. Early 1968 was another inflection point. Mm-hmm. The first time Johnny Carson, the host of Tonight Show, stepped aside and Harry Belafonte, yes, being the host. And I watched the documentary, which was on MSNBC and the Peacock, the new Peacock mm-hmm. thing is also part of NBC. And it was fascinating about the guest list and what Harry Belafonte was trying to do, because besides being a singer and an actor, he was an activist, very mm-hmm. close to Martin Luther King Jr. Mm-hmm. Very special to me because in my coming out of college, I was a special education teacher with minority students. And mm-hmm. every year I played that speech, I have a dream speech. Mm-hmm. I also quoted Langston Hughes' poetry. So it meant a lot to me. But that was a very important time in 1968, which still resonates today. I wonder if you had a chance to watch that documentary or your thoughts about Harry Belafonte going back to 1968. I remember 1968, and I'm sure you remember it too. I remember 68, and I I have not watched the documentary, um, but to to see black folks on TV as other than you know slaves or mammy or you know entertaining whites, but I also remember in the fifties when Nat King Cole had a television show. Oh yeah, going back. Right? Yeah, he had a television show and where he would play and he would, would sing and we would crowd around that television where the screen wasn't as big as the screen on my laptop. Uh, but after a while, you know, there was there was uproar about this this colored person being uh, on on television because again, it when when you see black people in positions that white people believe are theirs, it destroys the narrative of white supremacy. You're not supposed to have a television show. Yeah, Harry Belafonte surely wasn't supposed to be uh, on the on the Tonight Show taking over for Johnny Carson and then having this litany of people come on to talk about tough subjects. Uh, so it, it, it's how do you how do you push the envelope, understanding that there is going to be there's going to be pushback. There are folks who are going to like it, and folks like how dare they? Who made that decision? I am sure there were all kinds of complaints uh, about that happening. And so we we as, as 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 black folk have always pushed the envelope and somehow pushed white people to recognize that. We're we're just as good. We are people too. We are human beings. 
that we have contributed to this country, if it wasn't for uh, slavery uh, undergirding the economic system in this country, it wouldn't be as great as it is today. Uh, Wall Street, uh, it actually had a wall, and at that wall, uh, Africans were auctioned off. Uh, so to which you know again played into that economic system. Uh, so we are the ones who 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 push the the conversation, who push the envelope, who know that we're going to do things, and then there's going to be repercussions, and and then that goes back to that that trauma because we know there are going to be repercussions, and we're prepared for the repercussions, but it doesn't make it any less traumatizing. All right, we're almost out of time for this first segment, but here's what I like to do. When I walk away from these programs and interviews, I tend to ask myself, was this a good question? Was this a bad question? But always some questions that I should have asked and I didn't. I will throw that out to you. Is there something we didn't talk about that you want to raise right now? If, if you look at all of the questions, we did not put it out specifically, but why should Black Lives Matter? And we matter. And for me, we matter because we're image bearers. We are God's image bearers. And so we, we, we don't ask white people to give us anything. We're just saying don't put obstacles in our way to achieve what this country allegedly says it's all about. We're not asking you for anything. Just don't put obstacles and barriers in our way. That's all. We will make our own lives matter. We don't want to compete with you. We say that there is enough for everybody in this country. And so if you just get out of our way, don't put obstacles. We will be able to achieve what we are called to achieve. And that's why Black Lives Matter. My guest has been Reverend Gail Fisher-Stewart, editor of Preaching Black Lives Matter. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Blessings to you. Blessings on your next episode. Thank you so much. After the break, the author, Darren Strauss, joins the conversation. I'm Larry Davidson. This is the podcast, Artful Periscope. The Artful Periscope is brought to you by Larry Davidson Productions. To learn more about Larry, previous interviews, and further content, visit LarryDavidsonProductions.com. I'm Larry Davidson. Welcome back to the podcast, Artful Periscope. My guest, Darren Strauss, is the author of The Queen of Tuesday, a Lucille Ball story. The author, Min Jin Lee, who wrote Pachinko, which is a great, great book, said this about Darren's book. The Queen of Tuesday is a beautiful cinematic story about three people, the beloved actor, Lucille Ball, a real estate developer, and his grandson, Darren Strauss. As in The Great Gatsby, Strauss reminds us here that ghosts unseen remain deeply felt, renew our hearts, most passionate yearnings and ambitions. Darren Strauss, good to talk to you again. Very good to be here. Thanks for having me back. It's always nice to talk with you. I have had an unusual reaction to your book. 
almost unique. Except for a brief conversation on the phone, we haven't spoken in quite a few years, going back to your first novel, Chang and Ng, which is a terrific book. When I picked up the book, before I started to read it, I saw your name. And I don't know if I can verbalize my thoughts because they're very internal about my initial reaction to seeing your name on this book. It was special and I'm not sure why. And the question I will ask, I know it's a question, it's a reaction. When you pick up a book and you see somebody's name, what kind of reactions do you have? Because in my mind, there's the spoken word and then there's the internal dialogue and discussion we have with ourselves. So I'm curious about how you think inside yourself because you're a very thoughtful and gifted writer. Your thoughts about that? That's a really good question. It's a tough one. You know, I really depends on the book, I guess. Um, you know, when I, when I uh, come across a book I hadn't known about by a writer I really like, it does almost feel like... Um, you get to spend time with a friend, even if you didn't know the person. I mean, there are some writers I feel that way about, even if they're not quite my favorite writers, I just feel a connection with them. Uh, the, the, um, there's a writer, I'm blanking on his name right now, but he said, there are some books that are kind of like the books of your life. And so they might not be even your favorite books or your favorite authors, but there are some books you just feel a connection to. So the writer V.S. Pritchett is like that for me. He's not necessarily my favorite writer, I don't necessarily think he's the best writer ever, but I, there's something about his books that just speak to me, and I feel like he's a friend, even though he, you know, he died before I even got published, so I never got to meet him. In a sense, can I, can I say there is a certain duality and conflict between what we say and what we think? Going back to what I said initially about this internal dialogue and conversation, because private thoughts are essentially, in my mind, who we truly are. And I think also this resonates in how you set up the narrative. And I'll follow up on that, but I'm just curious about your initial reaction to also what I'm thinking about, my reaction to what you do. Well, it means a lot. You know, I, uh, you know, you write this book, in, or you write, anyone writes any book in isolation and they don't know how it's gonna be received. And this one, people seem to like it, so that that's nice, but you know, when you say what you said, it, it really means a lot to me. You know, I, um, you, you, I, you know, you work hard to be to get to where you are, and and the fact that uh, you feel that way means a lot. Now, this book is a novel, so by definition, you make up certain things. What was your your family's in this book, including including a Darren Strauss? And your grandfather is Adore Strauss and other family members. Norman Strauss is one of my favorite characters, by the way, in this book. So when your family and friends are reading this book, what was their reaction? Well, I should, I guess I should give a quick overview of the book. Um, so yeah, it, it's a novel, as you say, but it's it's a weird one in a way. It's it's sort of a mix of a bunch of things. It's a it's like a biography of Lucille Ball's golden period. And that was really heavily researched. And it's a family memoir, as you say, the story of my grandfather. And then it's a it's an account of my grandfather's passionate love affair with Lucille Ball, which is invented. So there's a lot of stuff that is invented, but 
but there's also a lot of stuff that's researched. And I, I did, to answer your question, I did um, piss off a lot of family members with this one, I think, because I was pretty honest about my grandfather and his and his flaws and his uh, his his mistakes. Now, I, I recorded Menjin Lee, whose book, Pachinko, is amazing. I did a, I moderated an event with her, Marie Benedict, George Pelicanos, and Min. That was an amazing experience. What I took away from her is she says, I put a lot of demands on myself when I write, when I write, especially Pachinko, which is a great book, by the way. But I also make demands of the reader. So what demands did you place on yourself writing this book? And what demands, if you do, do you place on the reader? It's a good question. I, I think I place most of the demands on myself. This book, because it was so complicated, because it's a mixture of all these different things, it took me a really long time to write. And it was initially 650 pages. It ended up 300 pages. I, I wrote all this stuff and then I cut and cut and cut and cut just to get it right. And so I think it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, and in terms of the reader, I really wanted it to be a fun read. I guess there, I guess the, any demands on the reader would be, you know, realizing that it's that there are some fictional elements. I do say at the end what's true and what's not, but I really wanted it to be a fun read for the for the reader. And that's why I told it the way I did. You know, when you're writing fiction, generally, you ask yourself always, does this make sense, or is this character compelling? And I thought, you know, if I write about Lucille Ball, I won't have to ask those questions because it will make sense because most of it happened. And is the character compelling? Yes, it's Lucille Ball, a very compelling life, which I guess we'll get into. And then when you're writing nonfiction, the problem is you have to stick with what's known. And so Lucille Ball was very guarded. And so her biographies read, to me, is very dry. She's not really able to the biographers are not really able to say what it's like to be the most famous person in the world because she didn't talk about that mm. so i felt like if i if i took those liberties i could i could make it both more fun and more engaging than a than a uh, a biography and more grounded than fiction so i thought you know it could be the most fun reading experience possible if i do my job right now, when Robin Williams died, it affected me dramatically. And the reason why I raised Robin Williams, because basically he was raised alone. He developed who he was living alone and making up stories in his house, playing with toy soldiers. Mm. And the one take, one of the many takeaways I took from this book is, in a sense, very young Lucille Ball was raised the same way, almost abandoned by her parents and how to basically live an internal life. And I see that, I think that's in terms of your book, that's what made her what she was later becoming a celebrity performer and beloved by many who watch the television show, I Love Lucy. Were you thinking about how she was raised in terms of setting up the narrative and giving us insight into who she was? Yeah, I mean, I've, the few famous people I've known have, were damaged uh you know i think there's something about wanting that kind of adulation 
you know, I was friendly with Carrie Fisher. She was a great person, but she was pretty damaged. And I was friendly with Philip Seymour Hoffman and he was pretty damaged, you know? Um, the interesting thing about Lucille was what her talent really was, I think, was determination. Um, she lived in upstate New York as a kid and ran away from home and tried to become famous at 16 and was sent home after producers told her, you're not funny, you're not talented, go home. And from 16 to 40, she kept trying to make it and she kept failing and she just wouldn't stop. And I thought that was sort of amazing. And of her own talent, she said once, I'm not funny on my own, I, I, I can't tell jokes. I'm not the prettiest, I can't sing, I can't dance. I'm not the best actress. So what is it about her that people loved? I think it was, they could sense that she really just worked so hard to get to where she was. And she actually made that the subject matter of the show. Almost every episode is about an untalented woman trying to become on stage, trying to get on stage, which I think is sort of how she saw herself, which is sort of tragic in a way. And you mentioned her past. Her father died when she was very young. Then her mom almost immediately remarried and abandoned her and left her not with her grandparents, but with her step-grandparents. So that's about as abandoned as you can be. And so, yeah, she was very uh, needy. She really wanted love her whole life. And I think that is part of the reason I found her so interesting. My guest is Darren Charles. His new book is called The Queen of Tuesday. Now, Graham Greene is a famous writer. He's famous for the importance of opening paragraphs. Your opening paragraph in this book sets everything up. It's going to surprise a lot of people. And for me, it was one of the most demanding elements of the book because I'm trying to think, where are we going with this story? So talk about the opening paragraph because it sets everything up. But I have to say, there's a brick, there's Coney Island, there's Fred Trump in this book. Where are we going? So talk about that if you can. Well, so... My grandfather, uh, as you mentioned, is a big part of the book, and he was invited to this party thrown by Trump's father. So my grandfather was, I like to joke that my grandfather had a unique talent. He's probably the only one in America who was able to inherit high rises from Manhattan and still end up broke. He was just like a terrible businessman. But before he ended up broke, he was uh, a real estate mogul and because he inherited this stuff from his father. And so he was at this party and he knew Trump's father. And Lucille Ball was also at this party. It was thrown on Coney Island when Trump's father bought up all this land. He bought up this, he bought this beautiful historic landmark and decided to tear it down. And like his son, he was good at manipulating the press. So in order to avoid the scandal of tearing down this beautiful landmark, he threw a party and he invited celebrities and at the stroke of midnight they threw bricks through this glass and steel uh, cathedral basically and destroyed this old beautiful part of America to put up new housing and I thought well you know Trump's father did that that's pretty resonant with today and it's a very cinematic scene and my grandfather was there and Lucille Ball was there so I just thought that would be a, a, a sort of killer opening for the book and so that's sort of how I imagine the whole thing. And I do think it's pretty cinematic opening. And, and uh, you know, people who, from from uh, Hollywood, who, who have approached me about the book have said that, that they see that as like a, a possible op movie opening. So, you know, 
here's here's hoping. Well, it's interesting you say that because another person responded to your book who's won the Pulitzer Prize, and that's Colson Whitehead. And this is what he said about your book, Darren. A gorgeous technicolor take on America in the middle of the 20th century. Bold, brassy, and big-hearted. And the part that I reacted to was technicolor because if you watch the old movie in technicolor, it was a different palette of colors. It's not what you see today. So... Is your book a different palette of colors going back to the time frame of your grandfather, Lucille Ball, Desi Arnaz, and the other people that, and including the young and Darren Strauss that you write about? Is it kind of a, not a skewed view, but a different view in terms of how you interpreted and wrote the narrative? Yeah, well, thank you for saying that. Yeah, it was, I mean, it was very nice of, of Colson. Whitehead to, to say that. I was, you know, I was very proud of those quotes you mentioned from Minjin Lee and Colson Whitehead. Well, the young Darren in the book is in the 90s. So that there's a very short storyline that runs through the 90s, but most of the book is in the 50s and 60s. And I think that, you know, that's a time period we can't turn away from. You know, Mrs. Maisel, uh, Mad Men, there's something really compelling about that era and, and complicated because it was sort of the highlight of American prestige. And was it a different palette of colors in the 1950s compared to the, what we're living right now in the 2020s? Yeah, well, so I, I do think so in a way, in that it was very, uh, as I said, you, I feel like we, it's, a, it's a period we can't turn away from because it's very glamorous and interesting, you know, um, and, and things were different then, you know, uh, and the, one of the reasons we can't turn away from it, I think, is that um, it was sort of the highlight of American prestige. It was it, Los Angeles and New York were so glamorous then, but also it's a time of great trouble, you know, um, in terms of uh, social justice, it was behind now, you know, Lucille being a, a woman, tons of obstacles that I, I write about, you know, so it was, I think, Certainly a very compelling time. And and I think we do imagine it as as brassy and, and, and almost different colored. This speaks the talent you have as a writer, because when you see a lot, read a lot of books that read very quickly, you watch movies that are bang, bang, big movies. And they usually use sex and violence as a way to get from point A to point B. It's almost... You have to have it just to move along. You, and this is where private thoughts come in, because I think our most private thoughts are about sensuality and intimacy. And I think this is a, this is a subtext in this book, and I think this is what you captured so well in terms of my reading of the book, how you deal with sensuality and intimacy. Agree or disagree with what the, the issue I'm, I'm raising? Well, I, I I appreciate you saying I did a good job with it. Uh, and I, I agree that, uh, I mean, I'll let others decide if I did a good job, but I, I agree that it's a big part of the book. I wanted to talk about those issues. You know, I feel like most love stories, uh, as they're written, don't really get at how complex a thing love is. You know, is it obsession? Is it, you know, is it healthy? Is it unhealthy? Uh, I wanted, I was influenced by books like uh, Love in the Time of Cholera, which show that love is, is 
really difficult thing. You know, the most <laughs> the most interesting part of most rom coms, I think, would be after the movie is over when you get together. How does it work where two people try to make that union come to be? So yeah, I, I, I totally agree with that, and I think the the book is, a, I think, in a way, a, a great love story. Although great in that it shows how difficult and complicated love can be and multifaceted. To follow up on that also, because we, we talked about the top of the podcast, um, there's going to be a lot of profound sadness with the passing of Justice Ginsburg. I mean, that's not debatable. There's also a sense in this book, profound sadness, the great what-ifs of the major characters. What if this happened? What if that happened? And I think this also addresses the fact that you are a very serious writer because this is also part of the subtext, sadness. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and I don't mean to bring the discussion down, but I think this is really important elements to raise. I'll let people make judgments for themselves when they pick the book up. But this is what resonated with me among other issues that you write about. And you write about issues in this book. Yeah. I wanted it to be a serious, you know, I wanted it to be a fun read, but also a serious book. And I do think that you know, the longer you live, the more opportunity you have for regret. And I think that regret is a serious thing you know and so my grandfather in real life had plenty of regrets he wanted to be a writer and his father told him he couldn't and so he I think that's why he was a bad businessman so my great-grandfather had a sort of typical immigrant story he came over from Russia he was uh, running from programs you know he running from anti-semitism and he came over here with no English and no money at 13 and the person who was supposed to meet him in Ellis Island didn't show up and so this kid at 13 wandered into New York City and somehow wandered out a millionaire 20 years later and gave his business over to his son. And he said, I want you to be a businessman. And my grandfather, his son, said, well, I want to be a poet. And they said, too bad. And so I think that's probably why I'm a writer today. It's because I always knew that story about my grandfather wanting to be a writer and not being allowed to do it. And so, yeah, I think that I think there's tons of sadness in life. I think there's tons of joy in life. I wanted, I wanted the book to show both of those things, you know? If you're just joining us, my guest is the author of The Queen of Tuesday, a Lucille Ball story, Darren Strauss. I, I am a huge fan of Jackson Brown, especially the album Late for the Sky. Why? Because the way that he uses language and how it resonates, the, the images that he sets, um, I'm going to, if I'm accurate, I'm going to give you your use of language in this book. And I put it in the same league for me as Jackson Brown, even though he's a singer, songwriter, and you're a writer. Because you're both writers. And let me set the scene. It's 11.30 a.m. in the morning in Buffalo when Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz are on the street. And this is what you wrote. The screen of every storefront is playing its late show of the moon. That is terrific imagery because I could never write that, but I can respond to that. And uh, I'm going to give you a second one because this has also resonated with me. And you also came up with this use of language. An actress is a kind of Baskin Robbins, a franchise of smiles. Lucille was a six, Betty Davis was an eight, and the great 
Kate, and I say the great, I'm editorializing, by the way, because you just wrote, Kate Hepburn was a 12. These two uses of a language and images, I can never do this. The best that I can do is take them from the book and quote them. And then I'm not, you know, it's easy to say you did a great job. You did a great job. But I want to know more about how you do this for the people out there who read these books, but also maybe because you're a professor at NYU too in journalism, how do you create this kind of what? That, once again, this goes back, and I'm running on, running on sentences, but this goes back to what I call the internal dialogue, because I think your internal dialogue and discussion is as important as what you put on the page and as we're speaking right now, the spoken word. So I'll throw that out to you. Please take it wherever you want to go. Yeah, thank you, Larry. I appreciate that. I mean, I like uh, Jackson Brown too. Um, and I, it's great company to be put in. Thank you. Uh, those sentences, yeah, I don't know. You know, I don't know if I had a natural affinity for that kind of thing. I just think, and I do teach writing at NYU. I teach in the creative writing department. I teach fiction. Um, and so I, I think this thing, these things can be taught, I think like any skill. Um, so I, I don't know, I think it's easy to say, oh, you have to be born with a, a talent. But you know, I don't know, I wanted to be a writer. So I would read people I thought were great writers like Nabokov or Toni Morrison or people like that. I would look at their sentences and I would say, okay, how did they do that? So, you know, this, you mentioned the um, windows were playing their late show of the moon or something like that. I would just see that, okay, so what, what good writers would do is they would try to make metaphors that were relevant. So, you know, Lucille Ball's a, at this point a, a struggling movie actress. So I thought, you know, Late Show is good. And, you know, what is, what is the window like? Well, it's like a movie screen. You know, I think if you just practice, you know, I would just practice. I had terrible metaphors when I first started. Like anything else, you know, you have to just work at it. I think it's easy to look at a, a good writer and say, oh yeah, he or she was just born that way. But for some, I don't know why we do that with writing and not other skills. People don't look at Derek Jeter and say, man, he just was able to catch those, uh, he's able to just pick up those grounders. No, he had to, you know, spend 20 years of practice scooping up grounders before he was able to play in the, on the Yankees. So I think if you read a lot and you read in a mercenary way where you say, I'm going to learn how they do it and I'm just going to, keep interrogating these books and asking how do they do it? How do they do it? Eventually, and then writing a lot, eventually you get good. I don't, I'm not a huge believer in natural talent. I think anyone who works hard can get good at anything. Now we mentioned that you are a clinical professor of the graduate program at NYU. Have you ever given your students an assignment to write a death scene? Why do I say that? Because one of the things that you did exceedingly well is write the death scene of your grandfather is a door Strauss. Now you may you may say you have to you know, this doesn't come naturally, it's not inborn, but boy, I stopped, I read it, I wrote my notes for the interview, I went back and I read it. And then I had my own personal internal dialogue. And after I put the book down, I thought about it again through the night. Hmm. So you've impacted me way beyond just reading your book. There was the dramatic carryover value. So I'll get back to the assignment, but 
for your students. I don't know if you did it or not, but what were you drawing on? Because this is personal, even though it's a fictional version of your grandfather, but we all deal with the trauma of death. But the way that you wrote it was eloquent and heart rendering. No, thank you. Yeah, I, I uh, well, you know, I wrote it in a certain way, but actually, in truth, I was in the room when he died. So that was something else to be there when someone you love dies. And so that is what I drew upon. I mean, so I was, I saw him die. And then, you know, it took me, God, 20, uh, 22 years then to write, uh, write the book. So, um, yeah, having, having lived through his death and then as a middle-aged person, reliving it to write it, you know, I just turned 50. So I, you know, you think about mortality a lot. So I was drawing on my own fears and my own experience. And also, you know, having read a lot, you know, the great death scenes I'd read, you know, there's death scenes in Tolstoy and in Shakespeare. And and, uh, I was just trying to live up to that, that kind of standard. But I, I don't think I've ever signed it, you know, um, I let people write what they want to write and, and try to help them get better at it. But but that scene was a tough one. You know, there are some tough scenes in the book. One was the death scene of my grandfather. The other one was the sex scene with my grandfather and Lucille Ball. That was pretty weird too. You know, I feel like if you write a book, you have to commit to it. So I was, I was writing this book and it was about my grandfather. And it came in the time where it seemed like the book needed a sex scene there. So I thought, well, if I'm going to write this book, I better do it. So that was a weird one. And then when it came to his death, I thought, you know, I'm going to have to relive this hard thing. I have to go, if you, again, if you commit to it, you got to really commit to it. So, you know, there was a very sad day for me when I wrote that scene. But in a way, I guess it was cathartic too. To yeah, I, I, we're, doing, get it out. we're doing Zoom, so I can see the emotion in your face. So this is too much. I apologize. Yeah, not at all. But also, once again, getting back to sensuality, intimacy, the scene with your grandfather and Lucille Ball also renders that exceedingly well. I want to go back to your first book, Chang and Eng, talking about death scenes, because that is fascinating. It's based on the real, the original Siamese twins. And I know, I hate to ask writers about their first books because it was so long ago. But the way that you portrayed the death scenes between Chang and Eng also is rendered exceedingly well. How much of that do you want to relate? And I know you remember, but I think it's important to say how you set that up because I want people to go back and read that book. It's an important book. And I know that over the years you've struggled to get it made as a Hollywood film and you can talk about that ever going to happen. But that last scene, because I still remember it. I I I read that book many, many years ago, but I still remember it. Yeah, thank you. I mean, that book came out, God, 20 years ago now, you know? So, uh, yeah, it's six books ago. Um, I, um, I, I was, you know, that was, a, I, sometimes you don't know how you do it. You know, it's really interesting. I remember reading that a, a bee shouldn't be able to fly because of physics. Like the wings are not big enough and strong enough to carry the bee's body, but no one told the bee that. So the bee can fly. So I wrote that book, you know, in my early 20s. I, I don't know how I did it. I wrote, I wrote, I didn't know how to write a book. I didn't, I, I hadn't experienced death when I started writing it and I just went for it. So I, I am proud of that, you know, 
and you know, it's interesting. Um, my my most recent book, I mean, I wrote a comic book. I'm not counting that. So before my comic book, my most recent book was a memoir, Half a Life, which was about an accident I, I was in on Long Island. You know, I grew up in Long Island, and uh, I was driving a car in high, in high school, and a girl from my school committed suicide by swerving her bicycle in front of my car. And, you know, the, one of the things I'm most proud of is being able to write that first book after that. Because <clears throat> I heard the story about, uh, so there was, a, there was a, a wedding where someone in my high school got married and a few people from my high school were there. <clears throat> and that wedding happened the week that Chang and Aang came out. And my book was reviewed in the New York Times by Michiko Kakutani and she did a really nice full page review. And so at the wedding, someone came up to, uh, a friend of mine went up to someone else from my high school and said, did you hear about Darren Strauss? Meaning, do you hear he's got this book out and it's in the New York Times? And this other person said, oh no, why? Is he a drug addict? Is he homeless? So people sort of assumed that I was gonna be ruined by that uh, experience. And the fact that I went the other way with it, I think is that one of the things I'm most proud of that I was able to, to write that book after that and so, to sort of, you know, make, make my life work despite having this, this hardship. Now, I want to go back to Chang and Aang because there's, there's a mind meld between the two of them. And also what fascinates me about the book, one died before the other. And as the last one survived, he finally felt free, which is also really fascinating because one was an alcoholic and one wasn't. You've got characters in the book who are alcoholics. But I believe towards the end of the book, it's in a sense, a shape of a mind meld between Lucille Ball, Isidore Strauss, and the other person we didn't talk about, your grandmother, Harriet Strauss, and the way that you create this in the book. Once again, read it, put it down, write some potential questions, read it again, put the book down. Hours and hours later, I'm still thinking about what you achieved with this book as a writer because you bring these characters all together with their personal internal dialogues, the great what-if, of their lives. Thanks, Larry. That's my favorite part of the book. I'm glad you mentioned it because no, none of the reviews have mentioned that before. So uh, I appreciate that. Uh, yeah. So I was trying to figure out how to, how to end this book. And I thought, you know, I think the great what ifs are a big part of all of our lives. And so basically at the end of my grandmother's life, Isidore's life and Lucille's life, they, they each have the same kind of thoughts. And I, and I think a mind meld is a good way of putting it where they, they sort of almost speak to each other without realizing it because they have these thoughts that are so similar and answering the same questions and asking the same questions. And uh, that's, I guess that, yeah, I guess that's the thing I'm most proud of with this book. And, and, and I'm really gratified that people seem to be responding to it is I really wanted to bring these characters to life, Lucille Ball specifically, because again, I read these biographies of her and I don't think they captured her. And I think it's because they, you can't take liberties as a, as a biographer. So I think paradoxically, if you can only stick to what you know is the truth, you can't give a really truthful portrait. So I really wanted to capture what it would be like to be Lucille Ball. You know, we haven't talked about really how famous she was. It's almost impossible to imagine today someone being as famous as she was. The most popular TV show today on broadcast TV is uh, NCIS, which gets 8 million viewers a week. She got the equivalent of 85 million viewers a week, so more than 10 times more popular than the most popular show. And on top of that, she was a great 
mogul. She was this great executive. So without her, there'd be no Star Trek. She greenlit Star Trek. Without her, there'd be no Mission Impossible. She greenlit Mission, Mission Impossible. So this incredibly important figure, I don't think there'll ever be someone like that again in American life who's that, that popular and that powerful in, in entertainment. Like the, the most popular actress ever and the, one of the most important TV executives ever. And so to capture what it's like to be her was the real challenge. And, and, uh, and so it means a lot that you think I, I did it. No, I want to recommend one other book. I don't even know if it's still in print. The book is called The Box, The Oral History of Television by Jeff Kisselow. And so if you're interested in behind the scenes, what you do in your book about I Love Lucy, and you're interested in the history of television, because in Jeff's book was Walter Bernstein, who was one of the writers blacklisted during the McCarthy era. And I got a chance to sit down and do an interview with him. So that was also very important to me. One last question I'm going to pose to you, which I think about, is there's fiction and there's nonfiction. I believe essential truth is in the house of fiction, not nonfiction, because nonfiction has its limitations. Fiction allows us to get to what I call essential truths. I think you do this in all of your books. How important for you as a writer and as a person is exploring essential truths? Oh, that's a great question. I think that's why I tried to mix fiction and nonfiction here, because <clears throat> I feel like the biographies didn't get at that. <clears throat> and the only way I could, and I wanted to write about Lucille Ball. I wanted to write about this true person, this important person. And I wanted to do it in a way that got at those essential truths. And I think there's a reason for that. You know, I mentioned Tolstoy. If you want to learn about Russia during the Napoleonic period, you don't go and dig up the old newspapers. You don't even necessarily read the history book, I think. You, you pick up War and Peace because that, that gives you the texture of life at that moment. And so I do think literature gives you that. And so that's when people ask, well, why did you mix fiction and nonfiction here? I think it's because I wanted to give this incredibly interesting person the fullest read I could, the fullest portrayal I could. And, and so in doing that, I had to invent this love affair for her. I had to go inside her head and tell you what she was probably thinking. And you can't do that unless you write literature. So it means a lot to me that you, you said that, Larry. And I, 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 think it's, I think it's true about literature and I hope it's true about my book. This is Art from Periscope. My guest has been Darren Strauss, the author, The Queen of Tuesday, a Lucille Ball story. Um, it's been quite a few years. Many years don't pass once again because I, I value you as a person I can get on the phone. I value as, as hopefully in your orbit of people that you know, because also in that orbit is the great Kevin Baker, who's been a guest on previous episodes of this podcast. And if I remember, you two, you two both met at Writers and Levine many years ago from my summer series at Palmer Vineyard. So once again, uh, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to see you through Zoom and listen to you talk about your book. Uh, I value you as a writer. I think you're uh, really, really special. Thank you so much, Larry. I really value you as an interviewer and as a friend, and it's great to see you always and talk with you, and, and it's a real pleasure and an honor to be on your show, so thanks so much. Uh, one last thought, the passing of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. She will be missed. She was very special, and where America goes from here that's an open-ended question.
Till next time, I'm Larry Davis. The Artful Periscope podcast is brought to you by The Booth at the Sachem Public Library in Holbrook, New York, consistently voted the best on Long Island since 2015. You can find the Artful Periscope podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcasts. Special thanks goes to our producer, Christy Crisafaro. Sound editors and engineers, Dean Meyer and Ryan O'Hagan. The song Alleluia is performed by Vanessa, and you can find her music at starfrost.com. October Blues is performed by Dana Songs and can be found at danasongs.com. If you enjoy this podcast, visit Larry Davidson's website for more interesting content at larrydavidsonsproductions.com. You can also find out about other author-related events by visiting Sachem Public Library's website at sachemlibrary.org. Join us next time as we pull the thread which weaves the tale that affects us all. She tied